Well, I do want you to open your Bible today over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. God's blueprint for the church as we have been studying 1 Timothy. We see that God has a plan for the local church. People who start churches, they don't really have a right. Well, they do. Let me put it this way. In America, legally, they have a right to have the church any way they want. But if they're going to do what God says, they have to follow or should follow the blueprint that God has given in the Word of God. And of course, that's what we've been looking at as we go through with many instructions here having to do with how the church should be, what the church should do, what the church should teach, how the people should behave themselves in the house of God, as we saw in chapter 4. And uh, today, as we continue on in this last chapter I have a probing question for you today. I have a probing question, particularly right before Christmas. Now, listen, I'm not a Scrooge. I am fine with people giving gifts and so forth. Not against that. But let me just say very clearly today, Christmas is primarily about Jesus Christ, God's Son, coming to earth so he could be our Savior. That is really what the focus should be on Christmas. The others saying, well, you know what? We love each other because he first loved us. And this is a way of expressing it. That's fine as long as you don't drown in all the stuff. So here's the question today. And I think it's very clear in the text. Is Jesus Christ enough for us? Is Jesus Christ enough for us? A couple of the most powerful tools Satan has in the world that he uses to ruin people's lives are materialism and wealth. And of course, the two are very much related. Materialism and wealth. Both of these, materialism and wealth, breed discontentment, depression, envy, strife, and there's many other things as well. You name it. The contentment that God intends us to have grows out of our relationship with Christ himself. God wants us to be content, but we will never have true contentment if it is not found in the right place. So that's what we see in our text today. This is a very, very interesting issue because it's really, it's not an issue of outward, it's an issue of the heart. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, we covered these verses last week, but I'll pick up. As Paul has been giving many, many instructions over these chapters, he says in verse 3, if any man teach otherwise. Now, I don't think it's just talking about what's right before it having to do with servants and employers and all of that, or masters and slaves, all right? I don't think it's just that. I think it has to do with even going back further into the text. And he says, if any man teach otherwise, in other words, different than what I've been teaching you, and consent not to wholesome words, healthy words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, godliness is a key word in this passage, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmising, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, 
from such withdraw thyself. Now you notice he says, if any man teach otherwise, otherwise, God's word teaches us submission to what God's word says. And if you don't consent to wholesome words, in other words, to the text of Scripture, to the teaching that's found in Scripture, anybody who has these different false teachings, folks, what should we do with false teachers? Well, the text is very clear. Stay away from false teachers, okay? Stay away. Many of them are doing what they do to make money. Now, we, you know, we think, okay, everybody has a pure motive. That's not true especially those involved in a prosperity gospel movement. These people are false teachers. I mean, all you got to do is listen to them for a while and you see how they manipulate everything. Oh, send us your seed money. And if you send us your seed money, we promise you, you're going to be, you know, wealthy one day. You're going to get financial wealth and all these kind of things. The truth of it is, it's just not true. Can I tell you this? The prosperity gospel the only place that it would have any chance of manifesting itself, so to speak, would be in the United States, where there's already wealth. It's the only place. It doesn't work overseas. Why? People don't have anything. Folks, let me tell you something. I don't know what any of you make, but I can tell you this. The poorest, quote-unquote, of you here in this room today, overseas, you would be considered a rich person in most countries. They see Americans as rich. You might say, boy, they have no idea. I'm just barely getting by and all that. They see you as rich. Why? Because you're American. In their mind, Americans are rich people. This idea of prosperity gospel doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work, period, but there isn't even a chance of it being embraced except here in the United States. God's word teaches us submission to what God says. Stay away from false teachers, okay? Now, how do you recognize a false teacher? I've been asked this, and that's a good question. How do you recognize them? Well, it's by what they teach and by what the majority of their followers believe. So sometimes you can watch somebody or listen to somebody and you say, well, you know what? I didn't hear him say, you're saying he says this or this is what they believe and all that. Okay, here's it. Take a survey of those who listen and follow the teaching of that person. You'll find out what that person believes. You'll find out what they believe. In Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Now, you know, it's amazing to me that people love to hijack this passage in Matthew 7, and they'll use this about Christians. And they'll say, well, you know what, uh, That person, they say they're saved, but I don't think they're saved because I watch the way they live. So they must not be saved because of the way they live. After all, the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. That's talking about false teachers. It's not talking about Christians. That's the context, okay? Let's understand that. Now, verse 6. Here we go. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. It says, but godliness in contrast to the false teaching, the false teachers who are in it for money, who are supposing that gain, and that's financial gain, financial gain, supposing that gain is godliness, what are we supposed to do? Withdraw ourselves, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that is a fascinating statement. 
What does it mean? I'd like to break it down today. The three parts of that verse. Let's look at the first one. Number one is this. We need to define what godliness is. What is godliness? The word is God-likeness. God-likeness. It has to do with character, all right? It is a respect for God that affects the way you live your life. That's literally what godliness is. A respect for God that affects the way you live your life. Godliness is not, oh, oh, that person's godly. They're trying to earn their way to heaven by their good works. They're godly. No, they're not godly. They're lost. You don't get to heaven by your good works. You're not saved by good works. Christians should live a life of good works, not because they're trying to get to heaven or become a Christian or to stay saved. No, we live a life of good works as part of the ministry God has given us to have towards other people. And we live a life of good works because we love the Lord. No one's perfect in the way they live. You're not going to get to heaven by what you do. You go to heaven by who you believe in. There's a big difference. True godliness True godliness begins, though, with salvation. I want you to hold your place here and turn with me over to John chapter 1. Here's how you become a child of God. You might say, oh, no, 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 no. Everybody's a child of God. No, not everybody is a child of God. Everybody's a creation of God, but not everybody's a child of God. Only those who put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ as their payment for sin become children of God. Being religious will not save you. Coming to this church will not save you. Going to any church will not save you. The only way you can be saved is putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that he has paid for your sin so that you don't have to, and that he rose from the grave. And when you trust in him, he gives you eternal life as a gift. Look at what it says in John 1.12. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ. Now, how do you receive Jesus Christ? The rest of the verse defines it. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them, the word even is italicized there, it's saying specifically to is the idea, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, notice this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Willpower will not save you. Doing your best will not save you. I've talked to people about the Lord. Do you know for sure you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah, I know that. Why? Well, my dad's a pastor. Hey, friend, listen, there are no grandchildren in God's family. Well, I, I was raised in a Christian home. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian any more than if you're born in a garage makes you a car. It doesn't work that way. No, it's believing on his name. Now, why is that? We just sang the song this morning, Emmanuel, God with us. It's taken from, mainly taken from Isaiah chapter 7. Folks, understand this. This is what it means to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. See, we have a need. This is why Jesus came. We're all sinners, every one of us. And our sin separates us from God. If this is you and me, and this is our sin... Our sin separates us from God. You can't get to God. You can't go to heaven if you have sin, okay? And you might say, well, if that's true, none of us are going to heaven. If it stopped there, that would be true because we're all sinners. We all violate the word of God. We break God's commandments. We go against it either in actions or in thoughts. 
And our sin separates us from God. God says our sin has to be paid for. If we're going to pay for our sins, we're going to have to spend forever in hell, separated from God, suffering for sin, because the wages of sin is death. This is what the Bible says. Religion says, oh no, we'll, we'll do good works. Good works don't pay for sin. Only death is the payment for sin, according to the Bible. Now look, we're sinners. Our sin separates us from God. Heaven's a perfect place. We are not. We have sin. The sin has to be gone for us to go to heaven. So how are we going to get rid of it? Good works will not do it. You notice it says in, in, up here, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. You can't do it. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. God says your good works can't save you because you got to be perfect. And no matter how hard you try, you're already not. So how are you going to get rid of your sin? Well, we need a payment for sin. If we do it, we'll be lost forever. But God will accept the payment of a perfect substitute. And that's what he sent us. God in the flesh, this hand representing Jesus Christ. He came into the world, the perfect son of God. And when he went to the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself and he made the complete payment He was buried and came back from the dead. And he says this simply, if you will believe in him that he did that for you, you're putting your faith in him that he did that for you. The moment you do, he gives you everlasting life. You become a child of God. He'll never lose you. He'll never cast you out. This is what the Bible says. Now, once you've trusted Christ the Savior, now your life can start manifesting a godly life. It's God's will, but you don't go to heaven based on that. You might say, what if you fail? Well, failing to do that would be sin. But how many sins did Jesus pay for? He paid for all of them, leaving us nothing. He paid for all of our sin. So we will still sin in the future. But the good news is this. When Jesus died, all of our sins were in the future. And if he paid for one of them, he paid for all of them. So when you trust in Christ, he gives you eternal life. Now, for those of us who are saved, once we have trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us and he starts working in us to make us more like Christ in our character. This is what Christian growth is about. It's not automatic. We must cooperate with him. But the more we cooperate, the more we will grow spiritually and become more like Christ, which would be manifesting godliness or godlikeness in our character. Paul talked about it in Philippians 1 and verse 6. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is godliness? True godliness begins with salvation. Godliness is a God-likeness, being like God. It begins with respect for God. And when we respect him as we should, we allow him to affect our lives. And that will affect the way we live our lives. The next one, you notice back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? That's an interesting one. What is contentment? Contentment means to be self-sufficient from our circumstances. Isn't that interesting? Self-sufficient from our circumstances. It is being satisfied 
with what you have. That's contentment. But from a biblical perspective, it is the realization that we have everything we need in Christ. Now, I want you to think about that, folks. We know that in our heads, but do we really embrace that in our souls? Are we satisfied with Jesus Christ? It is being satisfied with what you have. The realization that we have everything we need in Christ. He will take care of us. The Bible says in Colossians 2.10 that we are complete in Christ. Everything we need, we have in Jesus Christ. See, it's interesting. We live in the most prosperous country in the world. Yet it seems like we have more depressed people in America than any place else. Do you know why? Because we're looking at the wrong thing for our contentment. That's why. And yet there are many, many people, even who are lost, who live in foreign countries, who walk around with smiles on their faces, and they know nothing about this depression that we have in America. Why is that? It's because of those two tools that Satan is using, materialism and wealth. You might say, well, is there anything wrong with wealth? No, not in itself. Is there anything wrong with having things? No. The problem is when the things have us. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Paul said this, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Do you see that? Look at the wording. That ye always having all sufficiency in all things. That word sufficiency there is the same root word as the word contentment. Notice that this comes from God pouring out his grace on us. Here's what God says to his children. God says this, you have every reason to be content, satisfied with what you have, your circumstances in life. You have every reason to be content. Why is that, Lord? Why do I feel discontent? Here's what he says, because you're not being satisfied with me. You're not being satisfied with me. Folks, it's a dangerous place to be, but we all get into this stuff where we become discontent with our circumstances. Not happy with this, not happy with that, not happy with this situation, okay? God says he would provide all sufficiency in all things by his grace. God's unmerited, undeserved kindness. God looks at his children and he says this, folks, I want you to look to me because I promise you every single thing you need, I'm going to give it to you. You'll have no need if you look to me. I'll take care of every need. Can you see why there's gain in believing that? There's gain in that. New Unger's Bible Dictionary talks about this issue of contentment. It says this, the word means sufficiency and is so rendered in 2 Corinthians 9.8. It is that disposition of the mind in which one is through grace independent of out- outward circumstances. Through grace independent of outward circumstances. So as not to be moved by envy, anxiety, and discontent. Let me even make it clear this morning. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I say, well, that's not easy. I I get that. I get that. You know why? Because this is talking about something spiritual that you can't see 
We live in a physical world where we're being bombarded with images and temptations all the time. Before I got saved, I was studying to go into commercial art. Commercial art is, it's commercial art. It's not fine art where you're doing paintings of, you know, statues or people or scenics. Commercial art has to do, it's very closely linked to advertising. And my end of the business would have been designing ads and campaigns and whatever that somebody would use either to represent their product or to sell a product. This is what I was going into. And then I trusted Christ as my Savior. The fascinating thing about it, though, folks, if you now, this many years out from that, that's over 50 years ago now, I look back and I think, you know what? The entire advertising industry is to make you discontent with what you have so that you buy what they have. Is that not the case? That's why they come out with new cars every year. That's why they come out with new iPhones. Every one of them looks pretty much the same, right? You got a smartphone, they all look pretty much the same. How much more can you do with them? Now, we needed to get new phones this year. We got iPhone 14. iPhone 14 looks just like iPhone 13. Well, it's got these improvements, this improvement, that improvement. You know what? For normal people, it's not an issue, right? For normal people, if you're a geek, it might matter. But I'm not. Hebrews 13.5, look what it says. Let your conversation, that means your manner of life, the way you live your life, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. It doesn't stop there. It defines what you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's it. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be, your conversation be without covetousness, craving things that, that, anyways, be content with such things as you have. What do I have? Lord, what do I have? You might say, I live in an apartment. I've got an old rickety car. I don't have a car. I've got, you know, $5 in my bank account and all this. The Lord says, you need to be content with what you have. What do I have? We have short memories, don't we? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Well, pastor, you know, I wish I was somebody like Paul because Paul had it all wired, you know. Well, hey, guess what? He didn't. He did not. You might say, really? No, he, he did not have it all wired in this area of contentment. Not early on in his Christian life. Because in Philippians 4, which is written from jail, by the way, he says this, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now listen carefully. The learning of contentment for Paul is actually the fact that he was growing spiritually. And contentment comes along with that. A growing Christian will become more and more content with what they have because they're growing and they're getting closer to the Lord in their daily walk. Their fellowship and relationship with him is deepening as far as their experience goes. Listen, stuff gets to where it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. 
Now, that, that's nothing wrong with, you know, you need a new vehicle, get it, or, you know, you want this thing or, or that, as long as it's not a problem. You might say, well, how do I know what's okay, what isn't? Let me tell you something. If you don't get that thing you're talking about, are you going to have bad attitude? Are you going to be depressed? Are you going to be hard to live with? Because you couldn't get this thing, whatever this thing is, or that thing, or whatever. You're discontent, if that's the case. Again, is there a problem with upgrading something? No. Getting something new? No. As long as we keep the perspective of it. The Lord is the key to our lives. The learning of contentment for Paul is the fact that he was growing spiritually and contentment comes along with that. You notice in verse 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am. That means he had some learning to do, right? If he didn't have to learn it, he wouldn't have said it. It's the same with us. And here's the sad truth, and I want you to think about this. When we are discontent, we are drifting towards idolatry. We are drifting from the Lord in our daily walk. We are looking to something or someone else to satisfy our desires. We are oftentimes in love with materialism, just like the lost world. And when we cannot have all that we want, we become depressed that we can't have it. Okay? I think, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think a good way to see verse 6, where it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, is to see it this way. Be content with godliness. There's great gain in that. Be content with godliness. When I am content with respecting God and allowing that to affect the way I live my life, good things happen in my life. Order comes to my life. Peace comes to my life. What do I mean? How is godliness with contentment great gain? Can I give you some examples of this? Okay. First, God rewards it. God rewards it. You know, I would much rather he me reward me with something than me try to make a mess out of my life trying to get something. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, But bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And all these things, material needs, all these things will be added unto you. He'll take care of our needs, not necessarily our greeds, but our needs. So God rewards contentment. Godliness with contentment, he rewards it. Secondly, when we are content with being godly, it weakens the power of temptation in our life. It weakens the power of temptation. Let me show you this. Look with me to Mark chapter 4. Keep your place in Timothy. Mark chapter 4. We see the parable of, we usually say it's the parable of the sower. It really isn't. It's the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils. It has to do with the different soils that the seed by the sower, the sower is the Lord, he sows the seed into different soils. They're in different conditions. It's referring to people. And it's interesting what it says. It says in Mark 4, verse 18, And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, watch this, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Riches lie. 
How about that? They lie. They say, hey, you need to be rich. This is where happiness is. Hey, you need to be rich. You'll never have another need. Hey, you need to be rich. This is where you find fulfillment. And yet there's millions upon millions of people who are rich or get richer or get richer or who have died in a depressed state, filthy rich. Folks, if that's what brings happiness, what happened? That's not where it's found. Verse 19, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entereth in, look at this, chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. Notice that the lust for other things is what ruined it for this believer. And I believe, by the way, that person is a believer. This is being discontent with having the Lord as our all-sufficient one. When we become discontent with him, when we want more, when we drift, that's idolatry. You're saying, you know, something else is more important in my life. Lord, you know what? I'll get back to you. I'm pursuing this right now. I'm asking you to bless my life. I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing a direction that I know in my heart is contrary to your word, but I don't want to hear it because my emotions are so tied into this thing or person. And so please bless me or we'll do this. We'll say, if you don't want me to do it, then stop me when he's already warned us about the wrong direction. But see, we want to put the blame on him. Do you, we see where the deceitfulness comes in here? It's lying to ourselves. Let's go back. How else is godliness with contentment great gain? Well, it brings the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but the fruit of the Spirit sounds good to me. These are the inward qualities, not based on outward circumstances, but based on our walk with Christ. Yielded obedience to God is what brings the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Look at the qualities here. All the things, by the way, that everybody thinks they can gain with the money, with the stuff, all the things that they want, they're never going to get them doing it that way. The way you get really what matters in life is by walking with Christ. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, that's humility, temperance, self-control. Against such there is no law, right? I look at that and I say, count me in. That's how I want my life to be. And folks, stuff won't bring it. A title won't bring it. Another person won't bring it. The fanciest car you can buy won't bring it. The biggest house you can get into won't bring it. The only one who can truly satisfy is Jesus Christ. Anything else we pursue is idolatry. That's what it is. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. Little Ellie was born the other day. She didn't come in with anything but a body and a cry. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. A wealthy man died. 
The lawyers, of course, had a meeting to determine all of his assets. When they came out of the meeting, someone asked them, how much did he leave? A spokesman for the group said, he left it all. He left it all. Let me give you another reason it's gained to be content with godliness is this. It spares you the grief that comes from idolatry. And we see that, by the way, right in our text. Look at it, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. It says, but they that will be rich, that's your goal in life. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. You know what a snare is? It's like a bear trap. You're walking along all of a sudden. Gotcha. Gotcha. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, desires, which, boy, this is graphic, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Can't you just see it? Drowning. What is one of the terms we have today? That person's drowning in what? Debt. How did that happen? Not always, but usually it's from pursuing wealth, materialism. These are traps of the devil to destroy people's lives. For the love of money is the root, literally a root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred or strayed from the faith. And look at this again. Boy, we have drowning men in destruction, being caught up in a snare. Verse 10, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Again, money's not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. And those who do, they're in for trouble. Pierce themselves through with with many sorrows. It's interesting in verse 10, where it says, which while some coveted after. That word coveted, it's a very uh, picturesque word. It means literally to stretch for or reach. To stretch for. I want that. I want to get it. You hear about it all the time. People climbing over other people to get a higher position, more money, this, this prestige, this thing, whatever it may be. Stretching. That's covetousness. God says it's a sin and it's going to wreck your life. The love of money and materialism has been the ruin of many millions of people. And by the way, including Christians in that. Including Christians. So, what's the solution? Well, the solution is found in verses 11 and 12. Aren't you glad God just, he doesn't just dissect us and open us up? Cut me open here. Oh, Lord, I'm feeling kind of sick. Let me cut you open and see what's in there. You got a nasty infection. Can you fix me? Oh, I can fix you. I'll fix you up. But you got to take his solution, folks. We have to take the solution. And we find it in verses 11 and 12, and it is this. It is to live for Christ each and every day. To keep your eyes on Christ each and every day. He is to be the focus of our lives. His word, the Bible, is the operations manual for life. That's why you hear us all the time. I need the Bible. I need the Bible. It's the key to my... No, that's a song. Anyway, get in the word. God's Word is what keeps our minds focused properly. Otherwise, we're going to drift. Live your life for something that will outlast it. Verse 11, but thou, O man of God, but thou. Do you see it? That's the contrast. 
Instead of having your life destroyed by covetousness, materialism, worldliness, idolatry, but thou, O man of God, flee these things, run from them, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Paul summarized it in one short verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. You know what that is? That's contentment right there. Godliness with contentment equals great gain. You're going to come out ahead if that's what you do. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. What does that mean, lay hold on eternal life? Is this talking about trying to work your way to heaven? No, you're not saved by good works. We've already covered that. Paul is writing to a pastor here. He's saying, Timothy, don't give in to these temptations that are there, okay? Keep your focus on Christ. Grab a hold of the salvation that you have and live that salvation out is what he's talking about. Get a hold of the eternal life that's within you. And when we do, and when we focus, and by the way, eternal life is found in who? Jesus Christ. Be content with such things as you have. He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Folks, let me ask you this. What if you lost your home today? I hope it wouldn't happen to any of us. What if you lost your investment? What if you lost your anything you have in a bank account? Could you be content? Well, yeah, we can be. Would we be? It's another story, isn't it? The time to prepare for a crisis is before it happens. That's why we need to be walking with Christ now. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. Listen, you may wake up tomorrow morning and this United States of America is done with whatever, for whatever cause. We obviously pray it doesn't happen. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We want to be good citizens. We want to be faithful Christians. We want to do what we can do. But folks, ultimately, God's in control, right? And the way we are, as a nation, are spitting in his face, it's only a matter of time before he says, it's over. It's over. I hope that's when the rapture takes place. A tax auditor came many years ago to a poor servant of the Lord to determine the amount of taxes he would have to pay. What property do you possess? Asked the auditor. I'm very wealthy, replied the Christian. List your possessions, please, the auditor instructed. First, I have eternal life, John 3.16. Second, I have a mansion in heaven, John 14.2. Third, I have peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7. Fourth, I have joy unspeakable, 1 Peter 1, 18. Fifth, I have divine love that never fails, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Sixth, I have a faithful wife, Proverbs 31, 10. Seventh, I have healthy, happy, obedient children, Exodus 20, 12. Eighth, I have true, loyal friends. Proverbs 18.24 Ninth, I have songs in the night. Psalm 42.8 Tenth, I have a crown of life. 
James 1.12. 11th, I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who supplies all my needs. Philippians 4.19. The tax auditor closed his book and said, Truly, you are a very rich man, but your property is not subject to taxation. Amen to that, right? Hey, listen, it doesn't get any better than what you've got, Christian. The problem is we forget what we have, and that leads us into all kinds of trouble. Let me say this today. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is where life begins. God not only will save you from hell forever, he'll also give you the very best that there could be in life now. He not only gives us life, but he gives it to us abundantly. He gives us salvation, and then if we walk with him, we see the blessings of a life that's obedient. But listen, trust him as your savior today. It is a free gift. You go to heaven on what Christ has done for you. Your good works won't save you. They won't help you be saved. They won't keep you saved. Trust in Christ. He's the only Savior. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.